keep us in the crosshairs of what it means for us to think about pursuing a new normal in our lives. It is, it is a sad reality that we live in a world, the, the pull of gravity will, will get a hold of your walk with God and will pull it down. It will weigh it down, it will distract it, it will dilute it with other things. And so if you've been walking with the Lord for very long, you're probably already aware that there are moments in your history where things were at one level and then there can be moments where things are at this level now. They're just not happening the way they once happened. And if you stay in that place for a while and then maybe compare notes with how things are going for your life versus somebody else's, you might begin to think that new address and that realm of activity and the lack of maybe Bible reading and the lack of heartfelt encounter with God in prayer. Can't remember the last time you shared the gospel with someone. Having a hard time putting a finger on where, where am I serving the body of Christ and its mission? You can begin to think that's normal. And the day we start thinking that's normal is the day we need a new normal. We need a normal like what we see here in the word. We're going to be looking through Acts 5 today and, and let's, let's add this to our repertoire. We're going to come across another story in a narrative historical book that God has put in the Bible. So when you read those kinds of books, if you're reading Genesis and you're studying along with the group on Sunday mornings, or you're picking up one of the books in the Bible that's recording history, it is is God selecting certain activities from history. He's not an exhaustive list. This is not everything God has done, but it's what God did amongst his people pieces of it in order to communicate certain things to us, which means some things have been left out uh, and certain things have been included. And, and when you read the story, you want to be careful about, do I understand that I'm reading an historical account of things? So when I read these events, what do I do with them? Right, when I read in the Old Testament about patriarchs and guys having multiple wives, what do I do with that? Do I, do I imitate that? Right, when I read about King David, leader of the country, committing adultery with a woman. That's the account is in there. Enough details for you to understand exactly what happened. Do I, do I imitate that? Do I, do I do that? Pattern my life, it's an historical recording. Sometimes the Bible's recording events without necessarily giving a lot of detail as to what you ought to do with that event. But we're seeking to learn from those events. And we've already bumped into some of that in the book of Acts. There are things that have happened in Acts. Should we expect those things to happen today? They happened then, right? I mean, we didn't get out of Acts chapter one. There's a need, the, uh, Judas has hung himself and, and new leaders are needing to be raised up. And what did they do? They got together, began to pray, and they cast lots for determining who the next leader would be. They put forward a couple of names, and they cast lots. It was almost like rolling dice. Now, they didn't invent that. God had actually explained to them that that was a way that they were to pursue understanding the will of God. Should we do that? Right When we go to put people in place as leaders, is that what we should do? We should just pray and put forth a bunch of names and then roll some dice? That's what they did. Why don't we do that? When we talk about encountering the spirit of God and we read in Acts chapter two, 
where they were gathered together and there's a prayer meeting going on. And all of a sudden this sound like a rushing wind that probably had this tornado feel and sound to it, that freight train element that began to just increase in intensity and a roar. And this wind effect came into the room and then little tongues of fire, little flames, kind of like what we see right there, sat on top of everybody's head. That was a prayer meeting. What do you do with that? Do you go attend a prayer meeting and, and, you know, got your eyes open waiting for that to happen? Like, I, I wouldn't want to check this out. I'm listening, listening for the freight train sound. I'm looking to see if anybody's hair is on fire. Because I read it in Acts chapter 2. Right? These are historical accounts. What, what do we do with these when we come across them? Do we, do we pr- pursue these? Replicate them? Say that we should experience them every day when we meet? Right? That's what we need to understand. When we come to read from an historical document that God has chosen to do some things in, we have a little bit of homework to understand what do we do with what we've just read. Now that's true here today as well. We're going to be reading about a report of great signs and wonders that happened among the people of God. What do we do with that? We're reading these stories and the question that I ask a lot of times when I'm reading the Bible is, so what? That happened. So what? What does this story do for us? Well, let's, let's read it together and we'll try and see if we can glean some insights. Verse 12 of Acts chapter 5. It says, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Now, remember, we've, we've been out of this section for a couple of weeks. Do you remember a little bit of what's happened proceeding right up to this? Remember, Ananias and Sapphira got a little bit too close to the holy voltage. And that was their last meeting. They were no longer here for other reasons. They didn't move to the North Shore. They just moved on, period. And so there's a little bit of a sense that people are attending, but there's a little bit of extra carefulness now in attending that church. What church do you go to? The one with the hearst out in front. Um, So verse 13, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. So there there was power that was a little bit intimidating and even scary, but there was respect like this is, this is as it should be. So they were drawn and they were cautious all at the same time. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. So that, even, so that they, they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. That as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now let's pray together. Father, we, we're standing today on holy ground, for we are invited by you to encounter your presence in our gathering, your living word into our hearts. 
Well, this is not a dead word. And Lord, we don't want to be dead to it. Lord, keep us, help us. Help us escape the normal that's invaded our lives where we can remember being in meetings like this over and over again. And we can't even remember what the passage was about. Can't remember what was preached. Lord, it's not what you had in mind for us today. You wanted us to encounter the living word and for our hearts to be transformed and affected by it. So Lord, here we are submitted to you. Let this, let this story that you have written down for our benefit come to life in our hearts and inform us as to how we live today in Jesus name. Amen. All right. Well, here's, here's the, the realm of the supernatural has come into this community. This is not just people gathering. They're not just having some interesting conversations. It's not just a debate center where ideas are flying back and forth. It is a gathering where God uniquely shows up in ways that, that catch people's attention. And apparently in this passage, he's doing some of this on a regular basis. So it's happening fairly significantly and regularly through the apostles in their ministry. People are being saved. People are being drawn to move toward whatever's happening. I think that's the purpose for signs and wonders. It's to take people who are not sure they want to come and draw them out of curiosity, if nothing else, to come and see what exactly is happening here. Now, again, we want to learn something from here, right? I don't know if any of us walk away from passages like this and say, hey, okay, so if you, if you want to experience healing, uh, you just, you, you need to, first, you've got to get a cot or a mat, lay it down, and somebody's shadow needs to pass by it. How many of y'all do that with that passage? Right? No, none of us do that with that passage, right? So there's some examples here of what did happen, and we've kind of learned, okay, what, what might we not do with this passage? But we need to learn what to do with the passage. Let me, let me bring us up to date here in this whole realm of signs and wonders, because Acts is filled with the activity of the Spirit amongst people like us, unusual things were happening as the people gathered, right? I'll just move through these quickly. Acts chapter two, verse 43. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So clearly signs accompanied the ministry of the apostles. So I think it's appropriate. And I want to, I know we're coming from a bunch of different backgrounds here. People have spent time in different churches, in different places. All right, we're coming to this passage and we're acknowledging that there is a uniqueness to what the apostles were doing on a regular basis. And they had the abilities to bring the supernatural ministry into people's lives at an unusual level. All right, I think we see that in scripture. But we keep reading in the book of Acts. We find in Acts chapter six, verse eight. And Stephen, Stephen's not one of the apostles, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. All right, so now it's, we can't just make an argument that the apostles did signs and wonders and everybody else just sort of appreciated that and stood in awe and even gathered around those ministries taking place through these men. No, there was, there was a guy like Stephen who just, we just heard in Acts chapter uh, Six, he's just a guy who's going to get raised up to help serve the needs of the body there. But he is a man full of the Holy Spirit. And here he's a man full of the Holy Spirit and 
power. Now hold on to that for a second. Let me look at this other example, just like that. Acts chapter 8 says, And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. Again, not, not an apostle. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, or some translations just say who had them, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was much joy in that city. All right, so clearly, signs and wonders are associated with the apostles, and clearly, signs and wonders are not exclusively associated with the apostles. All right, that's a fair statement. No matter where you come from, no matter where I'm going to step on somebody's toes here today, you have to admit, when you read the New Testament, there is an association of signs with apostles that I would put at an, at, I won't say an exaggerated level, but I would not put it at an exclusive level. I would not say only the apostles did these signs and wonders. No, men like Stephen and Philip went about preaching God's word and did signs and miraculous wonders took place through their lives. All right, well, what do you do with that? Because this is a challenge for us in this topic, like many topics. You know, that's, there's a couple of data points here. My temptation is just draw a line. And sometimes you can draw a line. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes the Bible just doesn't give you more detail. And if you make a conclusion on what you have here, well, you probably need to hold it with a little bit of humility. Because you just don't have a lot of data. For instance, do you infer from this that Stephen and Philip represent the typical Christian in the gathered community? And therefore... Not only were the apostles doing signs and wonders on a regular basis, but Stephen, Philip, Joe, Steve, Fred, bunches of guys were just doing signs and wonders all over the place. Well, I don't know. And you don't know either. Because the Bible doesn't tell us. The Bible chooses to record some events and it does open up the reality that there were some Men just like us who God was using to do miracles in their midst. So I would hold out the possibility of both existing. I would hold out the possibility that it could be that anybody at any time could be used by God to do miraculous things through their lives. That seems to join with the ministry of the Holy Spirit being resident in any one of us. But I can't also eliminate this possibility that God might have uniquely chosen to use Stephen and Philip and maybe some others that we just don't hear about. Remember, the Bible's not recording everything. So maybe there's some more Stephens and Philips out there that we just don't learn anything about them. Matter of fact, we don't hear about most of the 12 apostles at all. I think we can probably assume there's a lot of stuff like this going on through their lives. But, but might we make room for this? What if there's some Stephen and Philips and some folks in our midst that God has chosen through their lives to do some unique things through their lives. That there may be some people here today, you may be one of them, you just maybe even haven't discovered this about your life yet. That God has uniquely given you power to pray for people in certain ways and to see a particular effect come upon their lives. I think I can make a case for that. I definitely can't rule it out. 
that might mean all of us need to pay attention a little bit to how, how does God want to use us? We might have an urgency by God to pray for people in a particular way. And, you know, we're, we're bashful. We're not, I don't know. I'm a little tentative in doing that. And, and perhaps you'll never discover that's how God wants to use you. And after you begin to operate in that over and over and over again, would it, would it be wrong for the church to say, hey, somebody's got a need in a certain category for us to say, hey, can I, can I ask so-and-so to come over here and pray for you? Because seemingly God has given unique grace to that person to pray for you in this area. I think that's within the realm of, yeah, that could happen. And I think we need to be open to receiving that. A little further on, all right, we're venturing away from the apostles now. We're going to get down the road here. AD 48, Galatians is being written approximately that time, give or take a few years. So, so now you're, you're about 15 plus years removed from the epicenter of the cross and the resurrection and the day of Pentecost. You're about 15 plus years away from that. And now you're up around the coast, gone up from Jerusalem, about 400 miles away from Jerusalem. And there's this community of people called the Galatians and they've come to know Christ. And Paul's interacting with them when he writes and says this to them. Does he who supplies the spirit to you I kind of doubt he's talking about special Philips and Stevens and apostles at this point. He supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you. Does he do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And why do I bring this up? Because there's, there's a commonizing here of some of this miraculous deeds and signs and wonders. You're not just in Jerusalem anymore and you're not just dealing with the apostles or people that you would say were apostolic delegates. I don't really know where you get that term, but they're just people who hung around the apostles. They were Philip and Stephen as the last time I checked. I don't think it's because they stood close to the apostles, they got some kind of radiation effect and they went off. Who it's? I got this power from the apostles. Now I'm saying that a little tongue in cheek because if you over ascribe miraculous powers to the apostles, then everybody who's got miraculous powers must got it from the apostles. But that's not what Galatians says here. These guys, perhaps in Galatia, never met the apostles. It's possible that there was church planning activity and God did a work through an apostle to establish a church. And they never met that guy. They got saved months later after that guy was gone. And God is now working by the Holy Spirit. God is working. He who gives you the Holy Spirit is doing these miracles in your midst. Right, so this informs us a little bit as to, you know, is this just a Jerusalem first few years thing for the church? Or does it, does it spread out a little bit? Acts 14, verse 3. So they reminded, they remained, I'm sorry, for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided and some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. All right, now begin to watch the effect of signs and wonders. Because I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. It's not always a happy story. It seems like it would be, right? You do these miracles, you'd think everybody would be like, hey, where do I sign? (laughs) I'm in. Uh, Not the effect that signs and wonders always had. Acts 15 verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Later on, Paul would describe his ministry all the way around the Mediterranean Sea and he described it in Romans 15 this way, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me 
to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. He, he ascribed the activity of signs and wonders to part of the ministry of the gospel of Christ. It's not completely the ministry of the gospel of Christ, but it, it is a common element here. And, you know, there's, there's some places here that these guys are encountering some things, right? We just skim through this, and as we move through Acts, we'll get into more details on it. But in Acts 5, these people have encountered a need for the Spirit to come do something with something called an unclean spirit. In more than one place in the book of Acts, in numerous places in the ministry of Jesus, there was something in people's lives called an unclean spirit. Some kind of spiritual force. And if we read the rest of the Bible, we know exactly who these are. They're demonic forces. They're not demonic forces that probably look anything like what you've seen in a horror movie. And that's part of the, part of the problem with the diluting effect of the world that we live in. The world has turned these things into freak show, uh, minor chord, awkward moments in a movie, ghosty little things that pass in shadows. I don't, you know, the Bible doesn't say that kind of stuff about these entities, but it, it gives them personality. It gives them real, exi- they're not just activity. They're not just ideas that people get tempted with. They're personalities that exist. And they actually live in the world that we live in. And they invisibly touch our lives. And there are moments when the only, the only remedy to those things is God himself by the power of the Holy Spirit intruding into our need and rescuing us. Now that's just the facts. I know that doesn't play real well in a technologically savvy world and we're also, we're also scientific and everything's got an explanation for it. But you know, when I, when I read this, this is the owner's manual. This is the design manual that God actually created this world. He's really the only, the only one who really knows how it functions. And so, you know, we, we can join all of humanity and admit we, we thought the earth was flat for a long time. There's a lot of stuff that we were certain of as human beings only to come to find out later on, wow, we really didn't have that right. Now we've got scientific explanations for all kinds of human behavior these days, all kinds of it. And so all you need is you just need somebody to sit down with you and share some ideas with you, help you through that and, and maybe give you some medication for that. And, and we're going we're gonna to fix you up with that. Well, there were people just like you and me. They lived lives just like you and me. And then at that point, hey, they were technologically savvy too, you know? Had a new weapon. Wow, look at that. Look at the wheels on that. I mean, they, they had stuff that they were impressed with technologically, and they had needs in their lives that the answer to that need was the supernatural intrusion of God to touch that issue in their life. And that's what the, that's what the apostles were bringing. That's what the first century church was ministering recognizing that in their lives were things that only God could get rid of. And he needed to do it by the supernatural ministry of the Spirit. All right, now here's the reality. 
whether you think I'm out of touch, the Bible is diagnosing the condition of man. That condition still exists today. There are some things in our lives that the only way, the only way those things will be addressed is by the spirit of God to supernaturally intrude in our lives and to free us from them. That's just the facts. All right, so we hear these stories. We ask the question, so what? Here's a story. Supernatural stuff happened in the first century. So what? Wayne Grudem writes the introduction for a, a book, Our Miraculous Gifts for Today. It's actually a debate from four different views. In his preface, he says, how is the Holy Spirit working in churches today? Is he really giving miraculous healings and prophecies and messages in tongues? Is he giving a Christian new power for ministry when they experience a a baptism in the Holy Spirit after conversion? Is he driving out demons when Christians command them to flee? Or are these events confined to the distant past, to the times when the New Testament was being written and living apostles taught and governed and worked miracles in the church. Right, here's an unavoidable question that you and I are going to ask. If we read the Bible and we see stuff here that we've not encountered personally or in our time of being a part of a church, we haven't seen that. And so at some point, you will ask the question. You'll either ask it because it's been taught to you to ask, or you'll ask it just because there's an absence of certain activity that you see from 2,000 years ago on the pages of the Bible. I don't see that now, so the question is, does God still do that? Has that stopped? Does that continue? That's where this term continuation comes from. Does God continue to do this stuff, or was it a unique thing that God was doing that had a time boundary on it that once it got to this place in time for reasons that might be somewhat explainable by some. Once it got to that timeline and we crossed that, now God was no longer doing that sort of thing. Now, life in the church would be different. Life would be done differently than some of these things. Is, is, is that the view? Right? Three common areas that I put in your outline there is the question of continuation of apostles and prophets. For some, apostles, prophets, and evangelists. The question, do those exist today? Does God still do that sort of ministry through these kinds of men in the midst of the church? Or or did that stop? The question about signs and wonders. Do signs and wonders still occur today? Should we expect to see signs and wonders? Or should we just read about the reports of them in the past and, and celebrate that God was great to those people in some unique ways. And we benefit from that. But just hearing those stories, that, that, that could work. Is that what we're supposed to do with these stories? Or, or miraculous, unusual, charismatic gifts that took place in the first century. Right? Gifts like miracles and healing, prophecy, tongues and interpretation of tongues. Places where activity of God seemed rather instantaneous, not just worked out over time, but you know, actually you laid your hands on somebody and a miracle happened in that moment right away. Or it begun to happen and maybe it proceeded over a short period of time, but there was a, a recognition, it was a sign kind of a thing. It caught your attention. Well, is God done doing that sort of thing? Or does God still do that 
today? Does it inform the way we do church today? Right, let me just look at a couple things real quick, and I've got more passages here that I know I can probably get to. But just turn while I'm talking, you turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I just want you to see something about the continuation element. These ministries, these gifts, these miraculous involvements are linked to something. They're given into a context that, in my opinion, continues today. In other words, there's a need here for a certain kind of ministry to come into people's lives. There was a need back when these things were given. And that need is every bit as much real today as it was back then. So if any of these things in the heart of God are ministries, they are enablements. There's something that God gives human beings a unique ability to do because there's a need for them. Well, then that premise allows me to look at this and think, well, then it might make sense that if the need continues, the gift might continue as well. If the need stops, well, obviously that doesn't need to happen anymore. These gifts don't need to happen. Ephesians chapter four. If you back up a little bit in the verse eight, when Jesus ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Right, so there's this unique giving that's taking place referenced here. Verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Now, why? Stop. Don't read any further. Why did you do that? Why did you give these gifts? Why were they, were they necessary? Are they optional? Or do they perform some kind of a work that has value in God's economy? Verse 12 tells us why. He gave them to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. All right. Without getting entangled in, well, I don't know if I believe that signs and wonders and these kinds of miraculous gifts exist today. Without, without getting further entangled, can, can you go with me and say, does the church need to be equipped today as much as it's ever needed it? Does the church need to be protected from every wind of doctrine that blows and makes our lives go to and fro on today's ideas that come blowing down the pipe? Does the church still need to grow up into maturity and to be conformed into the image of the Son of God and be like him? Do we still need that? Yes. And it seems as though God's means of helping us get there was to give these gifts. And just, I'm not going to chase off on these thoughts too much. It it begins to, to be a human intrusion question mark as to when I take that list and I say, well, yeah, but I think God needs this one and this one, but I don't think he needs these other ones. I just doesn't make a lot of sense, right? You have this collection that God has given and then we have permission to dismiss some and embrace others. I, I sort of don't see that. First Corinthians, if you back up a little bit, the first Corinthians chapter 13 is tucked right in the middle of a lengthy discussion of a church that's 40 years out from 
the day of Pentecost. And they are in the church practicing these spiritual gifts. It's, it's common to the gathering of the people of God to experience things like speaking in tongues and prophesying, having words of wisdom and knowledge. Miraculous gifts and healing gifts are functioning in that church some 40 years later. And Paul steps in to help them with how to do the gifts. Paul doesn't step in to say, don't do the gifts. He, he steps in to say, hey, you guys got gifts going on, but you know, there's something missing while you guys are doing church. It looks like you don't love each other. Hey, you're doing a bunch of ministry stuff, but it looks like you don't love each other. And look, can I just point something obvious out to you? One of the greatest characteristics that characterize God and his people is love. So you can be about all these activity of ministry, but if you, if you don't love each other, dude, you're really kind of bankrupt in the midst of all your activity. Right, that's the point he's trying to make. And then he adds this little thought in verse, let's see, verse eight. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, now, right now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. All right, so all these miraculous gifts are taking place in the gathering of the church. Paul's trying to encourage them. Make sure love is in the midst of all this outworking of the spirit that you're doing. Somewhere in the history of the church, not in this passage, because if I asked you right now, you didn't know anything else, I ask you, what is he referring to here? When the perfect comes? What is that? Well, you know what? It doesn't say what it is. Read all you want in this passage. It doesn't say, Paul, what exactly were you anticipating was going to be coming? It doesn't say. You got some ideas about what it means? Good. Be careful how you hold them. Be careful how you discover an idea that's not in the Bible and you bring it to the interpretation of a passage and insist this is what it means. Because somewhere later in church history, people begin to explain this text in a way that is not in this text. They begin to say, here's what Paul meant. Paul meant one day the perfect that he's referring to is the day the Bible is given to the church. The perfect revelation of God in the scriptures. When that comes, therefore, since that's what we believe the perfect is, well, then these things will no longer occur. And then you got that strange butchered list thing happening again. Got all these gifts that are given, and he only mentions three. And then you've got to interpret, did Paul mean only these three? Or did he just kind of like laundry list and say, here's three out of a bunch of them and he moves on with his point. All right, you got to interpret that when you come to this. Did Paul mean he foresaw one day the Bible and all of its writings would be gathered together into a volume? And, and question, I mean, really, if you believe that, was it once the first volume had been put together and... 
guys, look, the first Bible. And then all of a sudden, God shut the, the gifts off. Because one man on planet Earth held the first Bible in print. Does that make sense? Did it await until the Bible was distributed? Because once we have the perfect, we won't need these other things. So we won't need some of these gifts to function this way because we will have the perfect. So when it comes to you in the mail, do your gifts get shut off? When you hold it in your own hand, now you don't need the gifts to function because you have the perfect. Or is that not at all what that passage is even about? Might it be about this? There's an age in which we live. It's a fallen world in a fallen condition. And you and I still got a lot of fallen stuff hanging off of us. So when we look at life, by the way, when we look at the Bible, we see through a glass darkly. We don't see everything absolutely. Even if the Bible's perfect, my ability to see the Bible isn't perfect. That day hasn't arrived yet. But there's coming a day apparently when not only am I going to see some things, but they're going to be face to face. What do, you, what do you really think that's about? I mean, just on face value. Face value. <laughs> Doesn't it sound like it, it will be about the day we stand before the Lord himself? And this age in which we live where our view is diminished and our eyesight is blurred and we have a hard time understanding and seeing and then that will all be done. See, because the fall will be over with and we will have redeemed bodies, glorified bodies and a new set of eyes that can take in the glory of God and can see him and we will understand and we will be known and we will know him. That sounds like something not in this world. That doesn't sound like the day that arrived when the Bible got printed. So what is this passage about? Well, it's about ministry gifts that continue for as long as the church needs them because we do see through a glass darkly. We do have weaknesses and we do have needs that exist as a gathered group of people that get touched by signs and wonders, by miraculous gifts being in the midst of our lives. So where's... Where does one get the idea that some of these things are no longer existing? They've discontinued. Right? Well, quick thing. Let me just fly through this real quickly. One, hints in Scripture that may be overinterpreted. Right? There's hints in Scripture that people may grab them and overinterpret them. The one we just looked at in 1 Corinthians, I believe, is an example of that. Somebody overinterprets what they believe the perfect is, which is not spelled out from the Bible. They overinterpret the passage and then kind of put a collar on what they believe that means. How about the reality that there are unusual seasons of God doing miracles in scripture? Those folks who have an argument about signs and wonders, they go back and they pull up the historic timeline of the Bible and they say, wow, look, at there was all this activity in the Exodus when Moses was empowered by God to do all these miracles in Egypt overthrow Pharaoh. And, and then you've got this period here, here where Elijah and Elisha did these amazing, powerful demonstrations of, of God's spirit in the midst of his people. And, and, and then obviously you've got this period in which Jesus is upon the earth, just turning the world upside down with supernatural, miraculous powers. And then there's a, a period of the New Testament church that's similar to that. Doesn't look like it's quite as animated as Jesus' ministry was, but it's similar to that in what's taking place. All right. That's true. Everything I just described was true. Now, why would I take that data and turn around and say, God only did things like that in these places that were highlighted? Why, why would I do that? 
Does the Bible anywhere teach that? Does the Bible teach that, that God didn't do any miracles amongst his people from Moses until Elijah showed up? Or did God do them and you overlooked them when you read the Bible? They didn't get as much press. Did God do them and it wasn't recorded at all? But God was still doing miracles in the midst of his people. Is there any reason why we would look at these events and say, God is restricted to only be able to do those things in those seasons and he can't do them outside of those seasons? Does that make any sense really? God only does signs and wonders in these addresses. And from now on, we're not to expect to see signs and wonders. I can say from this, if there was a graph of signs and wonders, it might look like this. Right? It might look like that. I can be honest and say in the Bible, it seems like there are seasons when there's excessive signs and wonders. And there are seasons when it doesn't seem to be as prevalent. But I'm not going to interpret that to mean God's done with signs and wonders. There's no place for it in the church. That doesn't seem to be the way the scriptures present that to us. This is a a reality. The purpose of signs and wonders was to authenticate or bear witness to the veracity of the gospel. And some folks feel like, okay, well, that's why the New Testament church was so fireworks-oriented with all these signs, because you needed to make some noise to validate that the gospel really is the gospel. All right, even without me reading anything yet. Does that mean no other generation and no other encounter with the gospel would ever need some form of veracity given to it? When they preach the gospel, when you, when you write it down and it becomes a printed version of what is preached, we don't need any miraculous attestation to that. Is that what that means? When a missionary goes into an unreached people group and brings the gospel to them, Does that mean God won't do miraculous signs and wonders to open their eyes to the reality of the gospel? Why would we assume that? I just don't see that at all from scripture. All right, Acts 2, 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. Then God did the same thing through Paul and Barnabas, right? When we read this a little earlier in Acts 14. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done through their hands. All right, Hebrews 2, verse 1. Therefore, we, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. I, I emphasize it. Because it wasn't just that God was bearing witness to the apostles, which some folks tend to think. It was bearing witness to the gospel. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributing according to his will. So clearly, when God was establishing the church, because that's the report, that's the time frame of the report. It doesn't mean there's a boundary on God's activity. It just means God chose to tell a story in the context of the church being established. That's where he writes from when we get Acts and the epistles. So as God is doing that, he is attesting to the gospel during that time. While it's being preached, signs and wonders are going on. 
Now, if we fast forward 100 years, 200 years, 500 years, 1,000 years, is there a reason now that we would look back and say God was bound to only do that then? God made a rule that he has to live by himself that he cannot any longer attest to the gospel by signs and wonders in the midst of God's people. But if you haven't seen them, you might think that. You'd also have to stop hearing reports of signs and wonders happening all throughout church history and all throughout the world today where God is still doing miraculous, amazing things in the midst of his people. I think one of the greatest difficulties is point number two there of where our discontinuation comes from. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think, says it best. The second danger then is that of being satisfied with something very much less than what is offered in the scripture. And the danger of interpreting scripture by our experiences and reducing its teaching to the level of what we know and experience. Right? We begin to make the Bible sound like what we live like. I want to put it on those terms. How many of y'all like that idea? Let's make the Bible sound like us. No, no, I thought we were supposed to make us sound like the Bible. I want the Bible to stay where it is. I don't want it to come to me. I want to go to it. And I would say this, second, is the greater danger of the two at the present time. People come to the New Testament, and instead of taking its teaching as it is, they interpret it in the light of their experience, and so they reduce it. They take what they have and what they are as the norm. So if I'm not experiencing signs and wonders, well, that fits with the idea that God's just not doing that anymore because I've not seen it and I've not experienced it. Maybe I need a new normal. Maybe I need to give God a place to teach me something new. Point number three, let me move a little more quickly here. Misunderstanding or misapplication, or I'd say overapplication of appropriate biblical teachings. All right, here's how this works. We see these great teachings, we overapply them, and then we don't see them happen the way we interpreted them to happen. So therefore, we are disillusioned now. Why pray for the sick? I've prayed for the sick before. I didn't see them get healed. I'm not doing that again. What did, what did you think would happen when you prayed for the sick? Where, where did you get your ideas about how to go about doing this ministry? What defined your expectations? Because quite honestly, some of us have gotten to the place where, hey, I've, I've tried that. I've tried that. It just doesn't work. Therefore, you know, maybe God doesn't do that kind of stuff anymore. If he does, uh, it's a mystery. And so we just back away from walking in it. Well, a couple of quick thoughts here. One, heaven is heaven and earth is still earth. That's a cute catchphrase, but it's just a reality. Heaven is heaven and earth is still earth. Do we expect that in this world that we live in, that because the church has been given the gift of healing... Everybody we pray for will be healed. Do we get that from the Bible? I mean, we're just told we have the gift of healing. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's rounds of bullets. You, know, you shoot them and you're done. I don't know. God does this thing. Well, how often does he do it? Well, I don't know. Does he do it every time? Well, I don't know that either. I can make a case for, no, he doesn't. But I can make a case for, he told us to pray. <laughs> So because he doesn't every time doesn't mean that it's wrong for us to practice these things. It may be an over application of your thoughts from scripture to say, oh no, 
The gift of healing means you could walk into a hospital and empty that sucker today. That doesn't look like what the Bible looks like. Does it mean that because there's the gift of miracles in our lives that every need that we now have, every difficulty in life is going to be met by a miraculous intervention? You go home today and your oven is broke. You just gather everybody in there and lay hands on them. Oh, Lord, we just believe in the gift of miracles. You're just going to heal this oven today. And I don't know, maybe it does happen. Some people got stories like that. That has happened. But is everything about our life now available to miracles on a regular basis? Or is, is there kind of an aspect of this and an absence of it as part of a normal Christian life? Well, if we believe in the gift of healing, does that mean we don't take medicine anymore? Well, I, I can't find a Bible passage in here that tells me don't take medicine. I can't find anywhere in here the idea that if you take medicine, you will so short-circuit the gift of healing in your church. I, I don't find that. I find human reasoning that didn't come from the Bible. Remember, human reasoning, and then I rush back to the Bible with it, and I stick it on top of these passages, and I say, that's what this must mean. I didn't get that from the Bible. I, I got it from a bunch of people who sat around and talked. And it was a good shot. Okay, that sounds interesting. I mean, nobody, nobody expects that Elijah is going to develop this uh, meals on wings idea, right? I mean, he's in the wilderness and ravens are delivering food to him. I don't think he goes back to where he was living before that. I say, no, no, honey, honey, don't plant anything. Don't plant. Don't do all that work. The birds will bring us food. You know, he didn't interpret that event that way. God did it and God could do it again. But it doesn't mean he'll do it every time that way. You know, Timothy Be responsible with the supernatural gift you have of teaching and prophecy. Be responsible with it, Timothy. Does that mean Timothy just gets to Saturday night and he's like, I don't need to study. (laughs) The gift of prophecy, baby, and the gift of teaching. I just wing it in the pulpit. No, because the same Bible says, Timothy, study to show yourself approved. Right, so we've gone places with these Bible passages that the Bible never goes and we've become disillusioned by them. Right? You, you live in a fallen world. I don't read that passage from Romans chapter 8. But when Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present age, right? I think a present age that will come to an end when we see Christ face to face. The sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing to the glories that are to be revealed. And he explains why the sufferings are there. He says, because God has subjected creation to futility and it it groans under the weight of that. It hurts to be a fallen world. And God has allowed that fallen feeling of pain to drive men to God. And he said that I'm putting this world in a pressure cooker to make it cry uncle and know that it needs me. You want to know why your life hurts? That's why your life hurts. Why does a good God let your life hurt that way? The same way a good God designed pain mechanisms in your body. Right? When something in your leg, oh, man, and that pain, you can hate that all you want. I mean, none of us like pain, but it's telling you something. This fallen world is telling us something. And then it turns around and says, look, and not just the world out there, you read the passage. Even us, ourselves, believers who have received the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan also. We're in this fallen world. But we've received the first fruits of the Spirit. So there's a difference. Should the church expect 
signs and wonders, miraculous gifts to be the air we breathe on a daily, everyday basis? Or are gifts and signs from God a taste of the future that get imported into our lives on occasions? This isn't heaven. I don't believe in, in, I do believe in, in divine health. Have you heard that come? Divine health and divine healing. Do I believe in that? Yes, I do. I believe I'll fully experience it when I get a glorified body. By his, by his stripes, you are healed. That's exactly right. It was the stripes of Jesus Christ and his blood that was shed that purchased for me a body that's not like this one. That day, I'll never need the gift of healing in my life. I'll never need God to touch that body that way. But this day, I do. But I, I thought by his stripes, I was healed. Yes, amen. Then, and sometimes now too. But I can't take that to mean that as a believer, I should walk in perfect health every day of my life. But when you get to heaven, if you get sick when you get to heaven, you need to go for a refund, all right? Because it's promised to you. When you get to heaven, none of these issues exist there. But nowhere does the Bible promise you here that it won't exist. As a matter of fact, Paul explains this. This is an age of suffering. It's a broken, problematic world where men have to cry out to God. And then God steps into the realm of the church and meets us in our crying out with miraculous gifts to sustain us along the way. Last, signs and wonders are not a cure-all, end-all in persuading people to believe. I don't want to take time in this point, but if you read the Bible, all of us would think, I would think this. I mean, if one of you guys had a funeral scheduled for Monday and you said, hey, hold off on that funeral home. We'll call you back. And you wheel that person in here on Sunday and we prayed and up out of the box, <gasps> I'm back. And, and news spread about that. Now we would think that the next week we'd have to add on it. We might have to rent the Superdome. If we, you know, what if we did that two or three times? Dead people are coming back to life. You couldn't keep the entire city of New Orleans out of this place. Wrong. When I read the Bible, that's not how everybody responded, even to miracles. You don't think Pharaoh was a little bit impressed by the miracles that Moses did? And all he did was welcome a hardened heart. He didn't turn and believe. He didn't say, hey, best thing I can do is just turn all of Egypt over to you and the God that you serve. That didn't happen. Jesus went about doing incredible miracles. In your passage, you have in your outline there, and he walks into one town. Woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida. If, if the miracles that were done in your midst were done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. Now, that's an interesting thought. You want to try and figure out God's economy of signs and wonders? Wait, so God, you did signs and wonders in Chorazin and Bethsaida to a bunch of people who wouldn't respond to them? but you didn't do signs and wonders to Tyre and Sidon who you say would have responded to them? You want to just scratch your head with me on that one? I don't know. But it does inform me a little bit. Don't think that there's a switch. You can just throw on signs and wonders off and on, off and on, off and on. Or sometimes we get around teachings of signs and wonders and that's the big fault we find in the church. The big fault of the church is there's not enough of that kind of power in the church. Hey, I'm with you. There's not enough of that. But... But don't keep going and overapply that thought and think that if there was, everybody would believe. No, no, they wouldn't, right? You, the quote that's right after that is a quote from John, uh, Jonathan Edwards. 
where revival came and people got radically saved and God intervened and there were signs and wonders in their midst. And if you read the article there, it wasn't but two years later that many of them fell away, were no longer affected. And, and Jonathan Edwards did what I just described, wondered about his own life and ministry. Have I somehow missed it? How, how did this only produce that effect? Right. Signs and wonders, a little bit of a mystery. They come and they go. They're a little hard to define. Right. But what do we do with them? What, what is our attitude supposed to be in this realm? Right. We'll go back to Acts. Acts chapter 5 is just reporting on what has been taking place. But Acts chapter 4, piece of the story that we move quickly past, is a prayer gathering. And the people of God, just like here, are gathered together to pray. And they're going to ask something of God. I think it's the same thing we should ask of God. Verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. Right? God, look at the things that threaten our lives. And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. So, God, we want to preach the word. We want to proclaim the truth. We want the gospel coming forth from our lives. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I look at that passage and I say, I don't see why any church in any age doesn't continue to pray that prayer exactly as it's constructed. There's no debate here about whether we're going to become the signs and wonders church and we're going to close the Bible and we're never going to speak from it again because here's what matters is that sense of the spirits moving in our midst. Everybody check your Bible at the door, turn your devices off. Let's just sense the spirit moving. Now, we're never going to do that. And they didn't want to do that either. They wanted to preach the word. They wanted to proclaim the gospel in words. Paul said that in word and in deed. They wanted both. God, we're going to preach the word. You do what only you can do here. You stretch forth your hands in signs and wonders. You do stuff that captures people's attention. You do miraculous things that people have to wonder, wow, God, God had to have done that. Right, here's my definition for the normal ministry of signs and wonders in your outline. It's the observable. Eric, where are you at, buddy? Come on back. The observable and repeatable reality that God does intrude and intends on intruding into the routines of life in unusual ways. These intrusions are unscheduled by us. I don't know that we can control them. Maybe sometimes we can cooperate, create a setting for them, but I don't think we can control them. They're frequently unpredictable and powerfully effective. And these intrusions are intended to bear witness to his presence, to meet needs in our lives, strengthen us for our mission, and help people believe the gospel. That's what signs and wonders were for then. I believe that's what signs and wonders are for now. Now, I want, us, I want us to pray, I want us to give God opportunity for some ministry into our lives. 
So here's the challenge for us. You know, we can get used to this. We can get used to coming into a meeting, hearing some words, considering some thoughts, taking some notes, and, and walking out. And that's an aspect of ministry, Holy Spirit-given ministry into our lives. But there's other aspects of ministry that you have to be available for in a different way. You have to engage that kind of ministry in a different way. When people had needs in their lives that overwhelmed them and they, and they believed something about God, they dragged people out into the streets and put them on cots and mats. When people got around Jesus and they saw the power, they pulled the tops off of houses and lowered their friends down into the ground in front of Jesus because they believed that there's something God would do. God would intrude. God would, God would step into this moment. Sickness, evil spirits, things that have just owned people's lives are all over this situation. But there's a God who intrudes into these moments. That's what he does. He just, he forces his way in to that setting. That God's still the same God today. And he may need to supernaturally force his way into a category of your life where you just, you just feel there's no remedy. There's no way out of this. this. This is so intensely upon my life. Can you guys bear an engineering illustration? It's just me. I just got to use my degree every once in a while. In this country, the oil and gas industry has been revolutionized by a process of getting oil and gas out of the ground that it, it discovered years ago, but it began to use in the late 1990s. It's called fracturing. They discovered that if you drilled deep into compressed sedentary rock, and they do it on an angle actually, you drill into that and you poke holes in this pipe in this drill casing, you could inject stuff in there. Not just try to extract stuff out, but you could inject stuff into that hole And in doing so, you would actually, if you did it at a high enough pressure and you used the right kinds of fluids, you could actually split the rock. You'd fracture the rock. And inside the rock was all this trapped oil and gas. And this process is actually sort of re-engaged the oil and gas industry in the United States. Intrusion of great pressure and power that forces something that was so strongly gripping to let loose of it. I think that's a good picture of what God does in signs and wonders. By the power of God's spirit, he steps into the moments of our lives where life has just contained us. There is something that just can't get released in our life. It could be health. It, it could be just a sense of joy in the midst of depression that's upon our lives. It could be a gripping sense of fear that just seems to be holding us in place. And See, all these things are variables that, you know, I don't know where fear involves demonic activity. and I don't, I don't know. I just know in the Bible there were people getting released from those things. And they were released when God injected the power of his spirit into their lives. Listen, this is more than just programming. This is more than just me saying, hey, as a church, guys, we want to make sure... We've got signs and wonders in our arsenal and we're open to that and we're using it. When you see signs and wonders in God's economy, it's dripping with compassion. When Jesus steps into this world, he's overwhelmed by the need that's here. 
the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and recovery of sight to the blind and freedom to those who are captive. And immediately, read Luke. Remember, Acts is volume two of the same volume of Luke. Immediately, Jesus goes about, he begins to touch this person and heal them, set this one free, heal that one, deliver that one, heal that one, deliver that one. And he looks out upon the people and he says, oh, laborers are few. Beseech the Lord of the harvest to raise up laborers to go out into the harvest. Because he looked upon the crowds and he saw them as sheep without shepherds who were harassed. The Bible word actually means they were harassed. Jesus was moved by compassion to touch people's lives. To step into their world with supernatural power. People who are bound by sickness. People who are bound by the devil. He was moved by compassion to touch their lives. So listen, you may be here this morning and and maybe you haven't made room in your life for God just to step in in some amazing supernatural way and touch your need. Can I rescue everybody from over-applying anything? But at least, will you give God a chance? I can't stand up here and promise you that God will now heal everybody in the building. I don't get that in the Bible, but I do get this. There are gifts of healing and there are signs and wonders and God does intrude. Do you want to give him a chance? Do you want to just say, God, this this circumstance feels so big to me. I don't see any way out. I feel whatever that rock thing is, that's me. I feel so compressed and trapped inside this moment. Well, what if God would just inject the power of his spirit into your life and release you from that? This morning, what if God stepped into your worst nightmare of what you've been experiencing and God, by his spirit, touched your life? And when you see it in the book of Acts, when God touched people this way, joy came into the setting. What if that's what God would do today? I don't see any reason why God has stopped doing those things. And the church needs to give opportunity for that to happen. So let's stand up together this morning. In this passage in Acts 5, people are responding. They're bringing people out so that the shadow of Peter can pass by them. They're going and finding people that they love and care about and they're bringing them all from all throughout Jerusalem. They're bringing them to this place where they can receive from God. Here's what I'd like for us to do. If you're here this morning and your condition is, I just, I just feel trapped in this condition. I feel like the only way out is for God to step in and intervene, to give, give me something I don't have. Awaken something in me. Give me new steps. Give me willingness that I don't seem to have to get free of this thing. Give me a new sense of his nearness and celebration so that I can stop staring at this or God needs to break into the brokenness in my body. I've just got this condition that is controlling me. All right. Well, if that's you, why don't you come forward? Come on up. Come on up and ask the Lord. Lord, I, I believe you're still the same God who does signs and wonders. I still believe you do that, Lord. And I could walk out of here today or I can try and find the hem of your garment and I can touch you. And something of power can flow from your life into my life. And this struggle 
this force, this temptation, this unusual work of the enemy in my life, this physical need in my body. Lord, I believe you still touch people. God, I want to ask you to touch me today. Spirit of God, just begin to ask the Lord. You don't have to be here. No, we don't get a resume on anybody that gets healed. People who get delivered. It wasn't because they, they work their way towards that. It wasn't because they got their life to a condition to where now Jesus is, is good to step in. He stepped into the mess. To completely broken situations. And he delivered folks. Hey guys. Most of the instances of these kinds of things taking place are because laborers were required. Harvest is plentiful. But laborers need to step forward and lay their hands and believe that God still, he doesn't just use apostles. He uses Phillips, Stevens, a bunch of no names in Corinth, people we never get a chance to meet in Galatia. People just believe God uses, God gives power by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to come. I'm going to be directed by God right now to come and pray and to pray for a miracle, to pray for God to leap into this circumstance. And as much as you're comfortable sharing something about what you're asking for prayer for, maybe folks who are coming to pray for you, you can ask them to pray. Just take a moment to let them know. Other guys want to come and find some folks up here who need need you to believe, need you to stand with them. Lord, we thank you this morning that there's power available for the things that we need. Lord, our needs haven't gone away. We're not face to face with you yet. Lord, we groan. We groan because we face brokenness in this world. We face the brokenness of our bodies. We face demonic forces in ways we're we're not even clear about. But God, life sometimes is putting the squeeze on us. Lord, we need you, Spirit of God, to come with your power. Come and bring the power of your Spirit. Break the rocks in our lives. Release us from these things. God, let this morning be the morning, February 10th, that some standing here today will say, I don't even know what happened. I don't understand what happened. I just know I came forward and suddenly I've never had that issue again. God has released me. There's a new day in my life. I feel different. God, that's what you do. God, there's signs and there are wonders. They make us wonder what happened. You showed up, God. That's what happened. We believe that you're still that God. Lord, we want to be a church that normally looks to you. God, it's not just about our bank accounts. It's not just about our counsel and our words. It's not just about the truths we teach from the Bible. It's not just about those things, God. It's also about your presence in the midst of us. Stepping in, Lord, come butt in. Come step in with power in our lives this morning. Come awaken hearts that have become dull. Lord, come. Come with pressure and blow into the lives here. Faith to believe. To stop agreeing with lies from the enemy. 
to stop reading a personal resume that says you can't do this, you can't, you can't go free, you can't change, you can't move on. God, do something this morning that says this is the last day that that's going to feel that way. Lord, bring liberty by the power of your name. Bring liberty and freedom. God, bring healing. God, we still believe that you're the God who supernaturally touches bodies that are broken. Lord, there's some standing here this morning. There's a physical need in their body. God, I pray that the power of your spirit, the gift of healing would flow into these lives. Lord, touch bodies one after another. Lord, let us proclaim the greatness of your name to be able to say, God healed me. I came forward in a church service two years ago. God healed me. Create the stories that we will tell about you being near to us. God, we pray, heal, heal, Lord. Touch these bodies. Heal, Lord. Father, come reveal the love that you've freely given us. Poured like Calvary, like a flood, we look to you. Spirit, move and shine your light. Change our hearts and fill our minds. With the radiance of Christ, we look to you.